I am not my brother's keeper. I am not my sister's keeper. They made their bed, they can sleep in it. They made a mess of their life, they can clean it up. I am not taking care of them. They can pull up their own bootstraps, thank you very much. And I am not going to inconvenience myself to care for someone else. There's no way I'm doing that, I'm, I'm not having that. That has been the collective response of our hearts. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. In our current Firm Foundation series, we are exploring spiritual disciplines, the habits and behaviors that drive and shape our hearts as we strive to grow and live in Christ. You can find more information about this teaching series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. And now here's this week's message. Good morning. Thanks for joining us this morning. If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to grab that. As I say every week, I love uh, the opportunity for you to look at the text that we're going to be walking through together. So if you have a Bible, grab that. If you have a smartphone, open it up. And if you don't have either of those, we have Bibles in the lobby. No one's going to watch you. Feel free to go grab one and and go pick it up. There's two areas that I I want you to look at. The first one is Luke chapter 15. That's about three-fourths through your Bible, four big books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, find Luke 15, put a tab there, and I also want to encourage you to look for Ephesians chapter 4. So after John, there's Acts, then First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. That's the passage that we looked at last week, but we have a little bit of unfinished business that we're going to cover this morning as well. So while you're looking for those two passages of scripture, we are in the fourth and final week of what we've been calling our Firm Foundation series. And and here's what it's all about. We have heard the great commission from Jesus in Matthew chapter 28 when he says, go and make disciples. That's the mission of the church of every single church on the planet since the ascension of Jesus, all local churches have been called to do this very thing. It's not up for debate. It's not something that we have to wrestle with that some churches do and other churches don't do. This is the mission and the essence of the church. And the way that we say it at Gateway is our mission is helping people to love and serve Jesus. That's what we're all about, helping people to love and serve Jesus. But if you want to understand our mission, you have to understand how we believe that happens. And we believe that the mission of God is cultivated by living the life of a Jesus follower. So we have to start thinking about our behaviors and our actions and the environments that we can enter into that help us grow in faith. So here's a way of thinking about this. While our mission answers the question, why do we exist? Our vision answers the question, how do we carry out that vision or that mission? What does it look like, practically speaking, to be a disciple of Jesus who's on mission? What does that look like so that we can grow in those areas and become more fully mature followers of Jesus? And here's the way that we have articulated our vision at Gateway. We want to be devoted to three things, but really it's one thing. It's just distinctives like turning a diamond. We want to be biblically serious. We want to be fully devoted to the word of God. That when the word of God says jump, we say how high. And when we believe what Jesus says through John and John chapter 1, Jesus the word is God. To know the word is to know Jesus. And to know Jesus is to know the word. We want to be fully devoted to the word of God. 
We want to be biblically serious. We also want to be community driven. I shared with you last week what the local church has done to me personally, and many of you have that same story. That it is because of people who are embodying their doctrine in the context of community that we have grown in faith. And so we want to be community driven. And we want to be relentlessly missional. We want to be people who are on mission. That the great commission matters. And we want to do all of these three things really well. Otherwise, the evil one will create distortions in our life. We don't just want to be biblically serious, but not in the context of community and not living out the Great Commission. We also don't want to be mission-minded, but never concerned about what the Bible says. We want to do all three of these things really, really well. That, that's the passion of our lives. And you might recall, at our very first week, we talked about the six catalysts for spiritual growth. These are things that are defined and articulated descriptively and prescriptively in scripture that outline how people grow. And so let's just look at them really quickly. And uh, if you weren't here three weeks ago, you can go watch that later. But here are the six catalysts for spiritual growth. Practical teaching, private disciplines, providential relationships, personal ministry, purposeful outreach, and pivotal circumstances. But here's what I want you to see. Of the six, a little asterisk needs to be attached to that sixth and final one. Because the first five, they are prescriptive in Scripture. So uh, Jesus calls us to be fully devoted to one another, to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. There's practical teaching. Jesus tells us that we have to be devoted to one another. There's 66 one another commands in Scripture. That's those providential relationships. All five of the first five are prescriptive. Go ye and do likewise. But the sixth is descriptive because we are not in the business of trying to conjure up pivotal circumstances because here's what happens in that sixth and final one these are situations that are ultimately outside of our control and oftentimes pivotal circumstances that lead us deeper into maturity and dependence on God are things that we would not wish for negative things like a move from one place to another or the loss of a loved one, or the loss of a job, or a cancer diagnosis, things that we would not wish for. And yet they're there because we live in a broken and a sinful world. And then God uses those things, he redeems them, and he turns them into memorials of his grace so that we can grow deeper with God. But with respect to the first five, because they're prescriptive, we want to fully devote ourselves to those things. So here's what I want you to see this morning. I'm going to put this up on the screen. You will see that with respect to practical teaching, private disciplines, providential relationships, personal ministry, and purposeful outreach, these are the things that we want you to be devoted to. So review this with me. Two weeks ago, we looked at what it means to be biblically Serious, And there's two behaviors that I wanted to lay at your feet and to say, these are the things that we should be devoted to if we want to grow in faith. Number one, with respect to practical teaching, we want to encourage you to worship with us weekly on the weekend and that you would be devoted to doing this every week 
Because something miraculous happens when God's people gather together and they worship the king, the sovereign king of the universe. And so maybe the next step for you is to make that conscious decision to worship every week and to join the people of God every single week. Then with respect to private disciplines, the encouragement that we laid at your feet is for you to prioritize time alone in fellowship with God. If this is new to you, two things we want to lay at your feet. Number one, that you would read scripture every day and that you would pray to your Lord and God every day, that you would abide in Christ personally and daily. And if these are two disciplines that you've been doing for quite some time, consider adding a third or a fourth, like journaling or reading good books or tithing or fasting, that you would add these things to your arsenal so that you can grow in faith. Then last week we talked about what it means to be community driven and we learned that if you Velcro God's people to God's word and to fellow Christians, they will grow. They will grow and we call these life groups. There's nothing special about life groups in and of themselves. We just believe that there are certain ingredients that are required for people to grow in faith. For them to be in the word, iron sharpening iron, that the people of God would be challenging and equipping one another to grow deeper in their faith. And so here's what life groups are all about. Ultimately, they are living room conversations to help you figure out what to do on Monday with what you are learning on Sunday. And we need these intentional spaces to grow in faith. And today we're gonna look at the last two. We're gonna look at two more behaviors outlined in scripture to help people grow and to become fully mature people of God. And so here's the fourth one we want to lay at your feet. We call it go time, and here's what it is. We want everyone serving within and outside the local church. Within and outside the local church. So if you have your Bibles, look at Ephesians chapter 4. Once again, we looked at this last week. I told you we would return to it. These words starting at verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, why? To equip his people for the works of service or the works of ministry so that the body of Christ might be built up until we all attain and reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become fully mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So what we just heard from the Apostle Paul is that the vision that is laid out for the first century church, the vision that was laid out for the church of Christians was that we would all be fully equipped and doing the ministry together. It isn't so much that pastors and teachers and elders and deacons would do all the ministry and the congregation would be recipients of that ministry, but that pastors would primarily be coaches if you will. And so I gave you that image of Steve Kerr who won five championship rings as a player and then four as a coach. He is the coach player. And that's kind of a, an image you can start thinking about when it comes to your pastors, when it comes to your elders. They are primarily coaches, but they do the work too. And then, who's the congregation? They're not recipients, they're not consumers, they're not fans, they're kind of like the Steph Curry 
You're all the players. You are the ones who are doing the ministry so that we become fully mature as the body of Christ and so that we can encourage one another. And if we're not doing those things, if we are not championing the priesthood of all believers, then here's what happens. We burn out our pastors. We make the congregation passive consumers and pew-sitters. And we hijack the gifts that the Holy Spirit intended to give to everyone. And so that's the vision. The vision is that all of us are called to do the ministry together. And let, let me show you this uh, elsewhere. Paul goes in to the church in Corinth, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says this. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. All these are the work of the one and same spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determined. So the Holy Spirit gives each individual person gifts. Why? For the purpose of building up the body of Christ. So that again, just like he said in Ephesians 4, that we would all become fully mature. But it takes all of us using our gifts in each distinctive way for us to grow as the body of Christ. Then he continues, verse 15. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, each and every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. And then look down at verse 27. Here's where he ends. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. So God calls each and every one of us to a ministry a service to build up the body of Christ. And so practically speaking, here's what this looks like. In the context of a local church, we are all called to use our related gifts to build up one another. But it's actually more than that, because you might recall from our Exodus series, I brought up that Hebrew word avodah, which means worship, but it also means service, but it also means slavery, but it also means ministry, all the same word. And what we realize is that worship is life. And so the compelling vision that I would love for you to see is that if you are a farmer or a stay-at-home parent or a teacher or a real estate agent or a doctor or a pastor or a custodian or whatever else have you, you are engaged in priestly ministry. That God has given you gifts to expand his kingdom in the world. And so here's the theological vision that Paul lays out for us. You are a priest you are a representative of God in the work that you do, both within the church and outside the four walls of this building. 
And so I, I wonder if the, the next practical step for some of you in this room is thinking about and articulating what is the ministry that God has given to me to build up the church and what is the ministry that God has called me to. It might be my vocation. It might be my role as a mom or as a dad. It might be something else. What is the unique contribution that God has placed at my feet to bless the world? And so number four is serving within and outside a local church ministry. And then we get to the fifth one. And we call this Great Commission Time. And that is inviting others on the journey. Inviting others on the journey. Theologically, we call this evangelism. And it simply means to declare the good news. To share with others the joy that you have found. And to have them invited into that. For them to see that the greatest news that you have ever received in your entire life is the news that Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth. He put on flesh. He dwelt among us. And there he went to the cross, scorning its shame. And the chasm between us and God has been broken down so that we can have a relationship with God once again. That is the greatest news that the world desperately needs to hear. And we are eager to share that good news with others who do not yet know the name of Jesus. So this is the last of the five habits, but it is certainly not the least because it is the only one of the five that is explicit in the command of Jesus. Again, think about Matthew 28. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. Of the five behaviors that we're laying at your feet, this is the only one that is explicit in the command of Jesus that we are called to go and to do. And so for the rest of our time this morning, we're gonna look at Luke 15, which is perhaps the most famous parable that Jesus ever taught. But what I want you to see is that perhaps this parable, more than any other one, reveals the tender heart of God toward people who are lost. People who are far from God. And so here's the principle I wanna lay at your feet as we read this important text. People far from God matter to God, and so they must matter to us. People far from God matter to God, and so they must matter to us. And we want to invite people into the story, and we are going to see in the context of this parable both our commitment which is tied to the Great Commission, but also our moral responsibility to share the good news of the gospel with those who do not yet know it. So as we look at the story, we see that Jesus is sitting with quote-unquote sinners, and the Pharisees are not too enthusiastic about that. Look at the first two verses with me. Now the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So these are people who are far from God. 
They are not walking in the ways that God has laid out for us. The prescriptions of scripture for how we ought to live our lives, they're not walking in this. But the thing that just grieves my heart, and I think it should grieve all of our hearts, think about this for a second, the Pharisees don't even want them to hear the divine instructions of scripture. Right, so like, what do we do with a sick person? We want them to go to a doctor. What do we do with a lost person? We want them to have a guide. But for the sake of the, the um, tax collectors and sinners, of which they are both of those things, they say, you can pound sand. We have no desire for you to even hear the instructions of Scripture. I just think that's sad. And then it keeps going. Verse 3. Then Jesus told them this parable. One thing I want you to take note of here, I think this is really, really important to catch. We are about to hear three stories. Not one, three stories. But what we just heard in verse three is Jesus told them this parable. Not parables, parable. Which means these three stories are actually one and the same. And the desire of Jesus is for us to compare and to contrast them. And otherwise, if we don't do that, we might miss the vital message that Jesus intends to share, not only with the Pharisees, but with us too. So it's three stories, but it's one parable. So let's look at the first parable with verse 4. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And notice this, he goes straight to the second story. No, no break in between, no questions, nothing like that. Straight to the second story, the parable of the lost coin. Or suppose a woman had uh, 10 silver coins and she loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And once again, notice, no break, no explanation. Jesus goes straight in to the third story, the parable of the lost son. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants." So he got up and he went to his father. 
But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. People far from God matter to God. And so Jesus tells three stories in a row, which is just one parable, in a direct response to how the story started. All the way back to Luke chapter 15, verse 1, when the Pharisees say, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And interestingly, this is the only time that I know of where Jesus tells consecutive stories back to back without any stops, without any explanation, without any questions from the disciple or some sneering from the Pharisees on the side. It's just boom, boom, boom. And again, the reason for that is because we are meant to compare and to contrast these three stories. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to review these three stories because there's something that happens in the third that is so vital to our understanding of what Jesus is telling the Pharisees and the disciples and the tax collectors and the sinners. He wants every single person that's listening to understand the heart of God. So in the first story, we have a man who has 100 sheep. One runs off. He leaves the 99, he searches high and low, day and night, until he finds that sheep. Then he puts the sheep over his shoulders, he goes home, he collects the community, and he says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. Likewise, in the story of the woman, we see that she has lost a coin, and it represents 10% of everything that she owns. And so she lights a lamp, and she searches high and low, day and night, until she finds her lost coin. And then, when she finds it, she reaches out to the community and she says, Rejoice with me! I have found my lost coin! And I don't know this for sure, but I like to assume that in between these two stories, Jesus just leaves a bit of a pause. And he looks around the room. He starts looking at the tax collectors and sinners and they go, Yep, I've been there. I've experienced that. He looks at his disciples and they say, Yeah, that, that makes sense. Like, if you lose something, you go get it. And then he looks at the Pharisees, and and the Pharisees go, yeah, like that makes sense. If you've lost something, you got to go running after it. But what's your point? What's your point, Jesus? And then he gives the third story, the most famous of all Jesus' parables. A story in which a young son goes to his father, and he says, Father, Give me my share of the estate. And one thing that we have to know, if we're looking at this with Eastern eyes, is that the only way the estate is divided is if the father dies. So for this young son to come up to his dad and to say, give me my share of the estate, is essentially to say, would you just hurry up and die so that I can get what's coming to me? 
And in that environment, the oldest son always got the lion's share. He got a double portion of what all the other siblings got. So in this context, if there's two brothers, 67% goes to the elder brother, 33% goes to the younger brother. But it's hard to divide an estate. Many of you, if you are farmers or business people, you know how difficult it is to divide an estate among your heirs, especially if you have lots of kids. But to do that abruptly, quickly, to get liquid assets, cash, into the hands of your younger brother means destroy your estate, make a mockery of yourself, and that's what he did. And he gives 33% of the inheritance to his young son, and he runs off and he spends it all in wild and reckless living. And then... At one point, he's feeding pigs in a pigsty, and he comes to his senses, and he says, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will go back to my father. I'll lay out my repentance speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be son. I know that, but make me a hired servant. And so he goes back. And then when he's still a long ways off, you see the heart of God in this. The heavenly father, his father sees him and he runs to him. He picks up his clothes in a very undignified manner in ways in which patriarchs never did and he sprints towards his son and when he finally gets to him, the Greek says that he literally falls on his neck and he smothers him and hugs and kisses. He slobbers all over him And his son tries to lay out the repentance speech, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and he won't have it. He says, quick, put a robe on my son. Put sandals on his feet. Take the signet ring, which represents his authority as a child of this household. Put it back on his finger. Kill the fattened calf. Let's celebrate. And at the end of the story, we begin thinking to ourselves, What is the vital difference between story one, story two, and story three? Did you catch it? Let's review this really quickly. There's three common themes of the three stories and one surprise. And the surprise reveals the tender heart of God and the indictment on the people who we might call insiders. So here's the first thing that we see. Something of great value is missing, right? In the first story, it's the sheep, then it's the coin, then it's the sun. That, that makes sense? Very clear. And right on the heels of that, number two, that something really mattered to someone. Like, really, really mattered. So that poor little sheep mattered to that shepherd. And that coin mattered to that woman. And that son mattered to that father. And notice the progression in value, Right? So the shepherd, he loses one sheep out of 99. That's 1% of what he owns. And if that sheep were to fall into the wrong hands or to fall off a cliff or get eaten by an animal, he would be grieved because you can tell that he loves these sheep more than just as a commodity. But if it died, he would grieve, but the business would survive because he has 99% left. In the case of the woman, it's a tenth of everything that she has. Imagine losing a tenth of what you had tomorrow, like a recession does. You know how painful that can be. Maybe you're only a couple paychecks away from falling into default on loans. And you know how hard it would be to lose 10% of what you have. But those two stories, in no way, shape, or form, compare to losing a son or a daughter. Losing a child. Given the option, I'm sure we would all say, 
I'll, I'll lose the sheep or I'll lose 10% of what I own, but I do not take my kid away from me. They do not compare to the value of the three stories. But these two story, uh, stories in no way, shape, or form compare to the loss of a child. And then we get to the crux of the matter. Here's the surprise. Here's what I want you to see. What was missing was valuable enough to warrant an all-out search, but only in the first two stories. Only in the first two stories. The shepherd leaves the 99, he goes after the lost sheep. The woman drops everything and she goes after the lost coin. But here's the question, no one goes after the lost son. Why? Why doesn't anyone go after the lost son? It's a glaring omission. And then it causes us to ask a new question, and it is this. Who in this story and in this context was responsible to go looking for the lost son? That is an important question. Whose responsibility was it to go looking for the lost son? To answer that question, I want you to turn with me to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 4. It's probably the very first page in your Bible, if not the first, then the second. This is another story, the first ever story of two brothers. Just like in Luke 15, there's a story of an elder brother and a younger brother. In Genesis chapter 4, this is the first iteration of a story of an elder brother Cain and a younger brother Abel. And the story goes like this. Let's pick up at verse 2. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of his fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor so Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Here's what I want you to see. I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? And ever since the story of Cain and Abel, the collective response of our sinful heart has been an astounding no. No, I am not. I am not my brother's keeper. I am not my sister's keeper. They made their bed. They can sleep in it. They made a mess of their life. They can clean it up. I am not taking care of them. They can pull up their own bootstraps. Thank you very much. And I am not going to inconvenience myself to care for someone else. There's no way I'm doing that. I'm, I'm not having that. That has been the collective response of our hearts. Now let me tell you the end of the story of Luke 15. Look with me at verse 28. I want you to see the comparison. 
Chapter 15, verse 28. The older brother became angry, just like Genesis 4, and refused to go into the banquet feast. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, circle, highlight, underline, won't even call him a brother, the son of yours has squandered your, prosperity, or your property with prostitutes come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, he reinstates the relationship. This brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now is found. So we see Jesus sharing this with the Pharisees. The people that I care about are the very people that you don't seem to have the time for. You don't seem to care for. But they matter to me. And they're lost. And they should matter to you because they're your brothers and your sisters. And they're lost. So here's the question that I want to lay at your feet this morning. I put it this way. Is your life oriented in such a way that it is clear that people who are far from God matter to you? Is it clear? Like if, if we just followed your life for a week, the camera was on, would it become clear that people far from God matter to you? And the way you orient your life at home but also the way we orient our lives as a collective church. What are the things that bother us? What are the things that grieve us? More than that, what are the things that ought to bother us, that ought to grieve us? And what we see here is the tender heart of God saying, people who are far from me, they matter to me. Full stop, full stop. It doesn't matter their orientation, it doesn't matter their gender, their age, their race, their ethnicity, or any other thing. They are made in the image and the likeness of God, and they matter to me. And they should matter to you. And God intends to give us a clear vision of his heart that people who are lost matter to him. So much so that he's willing to go from heaven to earth and to the cross to die a sinner's death even though he was sinless in every way to bring them back. So we know the heart of the father. We're just questioning the heart of the elder brother. And typically, the elder brother is an insider, right? That's the one who stays, the one who complies, the one who follows the rules, the one who is in church. Meanwhile, the younger brother is the one who is reckless, who sleeps with prostitutes, who does whatever he wants, lives in the fast lane. And so we see the juxtaposition, and yet we also see the tender heart of God. He loves his elder son. He loves his younger son. He wants both. And the end of the story should break our hearts. The elder brother is not in the banquet feast, so far as we know. He refuses to go in. And we have to ask ourselves why. Why? Because it reveals a pattern of his heart. He has the heart of Cain. He has the heart 
of Cain. And so I've shared with you a parable. I don't know where this comes from, but I've shared with you that the the heart of, of what we're trying to do as a church is this. We want to be a place to stand to move the world. Give me a place to stand to move the world. And we refuse to be a church that is merely a place to stand for the sake of being a place to stand. But we also refuse to be a place where we just say, we're going to move the world and we don't really care about any of the people who are here. They're like cogs in a wheel just trying to live out the Great Commission. We want to do both really well to the best of our ability. Give me a place to stand to move the world. We want to make disciples who then go and make disciples. That as we grow in maturity, as we grow in Christ-likeness, we call that the doctrine of sanctification, as we grow more and more into the image of Jesus, we see the tender heart of Jesus who says, people who are lost matter to me. And they should matter to you. They should matter to us as a church. There's a story from our Jewish brothers and sisters called the righteous man in the fur coat. Let me read this to you. This is uh, recited by a current rabbi by the name of Jonathan Sachs, and he says this. There are two ways of keeping warm on a cold night. You can wear a fur coat, or you can light a fire. Wear a fur coat, and you warm yourself only, but light a fire, and you warm others. We are supposed to light a fire. Gateway, listen We are supposed to light a fire. That's the calling of our lives. Not to insulate ourselves, but to bring others into the warmth and the mercy and the grace of Jesus that we already know. And some of you might say, but yeah, Justin, like if if I if I share my faith with someone who isn't a believer, maybe they'll ostracize me. Maybe they'll ridicule me, or they won't believe, or uh, it'll create some challenges in the workplace or in family when we meet together for Thanksgiving and Christmas. I, I, I get all that. But what happens if we don't? So here's a way of thinking about it. If your unchurched or your unbelieving friend was in your position and you were in theirs, what would you have them do? what would you have them say? Would you rather them say, I I just want to be polite. I don't want to rock the boat. Or would you say, I wish they would climb mountains for me to see Jesus. I wish they would do everything in their power for me to know who Jesus is. And so I think, once again, I, I shared this quote with you a couple years ago. This comes from Charles Spurgeon, and he says this. If sinners be damned, At least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. And so the Great Commission says to Cain, am I my brother or am I my sister's keeper? A resounding yes. Yes, we have a moral responsibility to share with others the joy that we have in Jesus. And so here's here's the final note that we find in all three stories. When the lost thing of value was found, it was a cause for great rejoicing. 
Nothing causes our heavenly father and his heavenly angels to rejoice more than when a lost person comes home. When a lost person is found. That is the heart of God. And so I want to share just really, really quickly a way that we do this. This is not a prescribed way. Like everyone in this room, you need to do this. We're just saying, here's a way to do this. And if it's helpful for you in your journey to prioritize the Great Commission, we want to lay it at your feet. We call it pi squared. We want to encourage you to do three things. Number one, that you would consider prioritizing praying daily for four people who are far from God. Four people who are far from God. And the only reason we say four is because we want you to be thinking about four different groups of people. The, the people that we're thinking about is that we want you to build authentic, genuine relationships with friends, family members, coworkers, or classmates, and neighbors. So that's why it's four. It can be five or six or seven or whatever else that you have, but four groups of people in your life that you are interacting with on a daily basis. And our encouragement is that they would be local. And here's the reason why, because after you would start praying for them, that you would invest in their lives. And it's far easier to invest in people that you see every day that you invite them over to your house, that you would build genuine, authentic relationships with them. Because as you know, people don't care about what you know until they know that you care. And so if you have a genuine, authentic relationship with them, then they can see Jesus more clearly through you. And then finally, invite. Invite them to the next appropriate step. It might be inviting them out for coffee or inviting them to join you in church. We've shared with you already, we want this to be a place in which you could feel free to invite your unchurched and unbelieving friends and, and they're not gonna question it. They're not gonna say, well, I, I don't really understand what they're saying, but that we'll create space for people who doubt and ask questions here. You invite them to your life group. You invite them out for dinner. Invite them to the next appropriate step in their faith journey. And so we believe that if you invest in these ways, the Lord will cause us to become fully mature disciples of Jesus. The five things that we've called you to, worship with us weekly on the weekend. Devote yourself to devotions daily, reading scripture and in prayer. Consider getting into a group where you can intentionally work out your faith and ask yourself, what does it look like to live out my faith on Monday with what I'm learning on Sunday? that you would recognize that God has called you to make a vital contribution for his kingdom, both within and outside the local church, and that you would pray daily for people who are far from God, because people who are far from God matter to God, and they should matter to us. These are the behaviors we wanna lay at your feet and to challenge and encourage you to put on as we move forward. You've been listening to the latest message in our Firm Foundation series focused on the practical habits and spiritual behaviors that lead to growing in Christ. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.